Earthly Beauty and Divine Glory by Hans Urs von Balthasar When and how transparently does Christian art reflect what in truth should be represented through beauty, the glory of triune love? On the Definition of Beauty and Glory Beauty, along with unity, truth, and greatness, is one of the so-called transcendental qualities of all beings and, as such, of being itself. However, it must be immediately added that all created beings are merely analogs of the absolute divine being and that the difference between the two is greater than the similarity. Fourth Lateran Council, DS 806. What is called the beauty of a created being is in consonance with the sublime attribute of the divine being that is known as glory. Kabod, doxa, gloria. Whatever is said about this, it is essential to recognize that no adequate conceptual statements can be made about the transcendental categories of being. But, as we necessarily think in concepts and have to give expression to these, we can come closer to the meaning of unity, truth, goodness, and beauty only through roundabout, convergent thinking. These qualities are not unknown to us because they are present, even though in varying degrees and appearances and all that exists. But they cannot be expressed by limiting definitions because being, as such, transcends all specific definitions. Nevertheless, that these qualities are a trustworthy basis of all our judgments is evident from the fact that we can measure offenses against their essence. We define lying as an offense against truth, malice against goodness, fragments versus unity, ugliness and trash against beauty. Since the transcendentals penetrate all being, it follows that they are not delimited from each other, but penetrate each other. Thus, there is an element of goodness and beauty in truth, and so on. The medieval thinkers gave a central place to the concept of ordo, or else rectitudo, because it attempts to express the mutuality of the various basic aspects of being. There must be in this some analogy with the divine being, from whom all created beings originate, and who, we surmise, is the supreme reality that pervades all finitudes. He became more accessible to us by his self-gift in Jesus Christ, and in all that leads to him and comes from him. One can see this beautifully already in the Old Testament, in the way God's basic traits interpenetrate and are mutually inclusive. God's truth and his truthfulness, emet, is always also his righteousness, sedek, and his loving kindness, hesed, and in all these shines his singular divine glory, kabod. This is not based merely on the concrete nature of the Hebrew language, but expresses objectively the unity of the divine being. From the foregoing, both the affinity and the greater difference between earthly beauty and divine glory become evident. Earthly beauty always appears limited in a finite being 
or through harmonious coordination of finite entities, while God, viewed as the absolute being and as infinite reality, both aspects of the soul eternal life, shines in other all-transcending and all-pervading indivisible glory. Glory Surpasses Beauty The Bible, in describing God's glory, tries to express its sublimity and uniqueness. It is significant that the word kabod did not originally call forth the idea of radiant light, as do the Greek doxa and the Latin gloria, but indicated the importance of the person, his distinction, his honor, as well as his spiritual radiance, from which then the sensible radiance is derived. Heinrich Schlier, therefore, would translate doxa as radiance of power. Natural religions, when they attempt to picture God, do not usually take an idealized human for a model, but something that is in some way other, perhaps intimidating, to emphasize the distance rather than the closeness. Some Chinese, Indian, Minoan, pre-Columbian, and Oceanic representations of God. When the deity is conceived as an absolute ruler, his representations are superdimensional. For example, in Egypt, where the pharaoh is represented as divine, he has to be made strange by being given a body that is part human and part animal. We do not concern ourselves here with distortions of religion in the direction of fetishism or of anthropomorphism. Biblical religion has rightly forbidden pictorial representations in the beginning. Man, by himself, cannot grasp divine glory and should not attempt to incarcerate it in a finite form. He should leave the center of the holy place open for God's presence, or, at most, place there only some objects that remind the worshiper of the gracious covenant of God. This prohibition in Israel has nothing to do with the negations in some of the mystical pagan religions. The latter are products of human reflection that recognizes that it is better to leave alone all, even the most otherworldly, depictions of the absolute, formless being. In Israel, the prohibition of pictures came from God himself, who claimed the right to choose the proper time and form in which he deemed to appear. The preliminary appearance on Sinai is, according to Deuteronomy, merely a formless fire in a darkened sky, from which a voice sounds, 4, 11, and following. Therefore, take good heed to yourselves, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Beware lest you act corruptly by making a graven image for yourselves in the form of any figure, in the likeness of man or beast or heavenly body. 4, 15-19 The desire to have, like other peoples, a visible God has led Israel again and again into adultery against Yahweh, in the beginning quite crassly, but after the exile by an anthropomorphic law that was an attempt to grasp God intellectually. This was emphatically rejected by Jesus who was ultimately the image God chose, 
but who himself was sacrificed to this cult of imagery. God did not intend to aggrandize his holy other glory in its appearance to men, but rather diminished it, fulfilling the prophecy that the servant of God will have no form nor comeliness. Isaiah 53.2 Jesus took upon himself the blemish of the world's sin to take it away, so that the inconceivable, unfathomable glory of the absolute triune love may shine in the world and in its history. In the insolvable paradox of rejection by mankind, the cross, and vindication by God, resurrection, the divine kabod illumines like lightning, once for all, definitively, eschatologically, that is, unsurpassably. Paul cannot cease pointing to this paradox in the glory that was manifested in Christ, and which from then on also becomes the basic sign of a witness to Christ, in whom God imprints his image. When John finally dares to state that God is love, for him this cannot be separated even for a moment from the Father's sacrifice of the Son as a substitutionary atonement, dying for the sinner. And in no other way is the Holy Spirit of God given to a Christian in the world than by this spirit of self-gift. Translation of Glory into Beauty What we have said here leaves the abysmally deep problem of surmising the translation of this glory of the cross and resurrection and of all the manifestations of the absolute glory and love that are immediately connected with this center of salvation history into earthly beauty. Essentially, this beauty is beyond all utility. It is its own justification, morike, and is thus the supreme reflection of the divine absolute in the world. And now, this earthly beauty is expected to assume a purpose, to express the supreme, altogether different glory of God, which, moreover, is manifested in the paradox of the formlessness of the cross. Can such a thing really exist as Christian art? Iconoclasm, that appears repeatedly throughout history, says no, or at least questions it emphatically. Yet God appeared in his true image, Akon, Romans 8.29, 1 Corinthians 15.49, 2 Corinthians 3.18, 4, 4, Colossians 3.10, the Son in human form. But this manifestation in the likeness of men was already an emptying of self that led in human form to death on the cross, Philippians 2, 7 and following. This too must be made clear in the image of beauty. Is this possible? A particularly keen discernment of spirits is needed here. When and how transparently does Christian art show what in truth should be represented through beauty, the glory of triune love? And when does it, as it were, draw this love into itself to enhance her altogether too earthly self-glorification. 
To distinguish this is a fearful task. There is a certain sphere where Christian attempts at art seem to assume credibility by their primitiveness, folk art, or naivete, even the subtle naivete of Brother Angelico. There is the world of icons which reflects divine glory by paying the price with a certain de-incarnation. But even these need discernment when they reach the pathos of some Byzantine as well as Serbian art. We must also beware of judging a work of art according to the impression it makes on us in the 20th century. We should evaluate it by the sensibilities of the time when it was created. A medieval choral evoked completely different feelings in its time than it would now. Yet not everything in great art is ambiguous, as, for example, are all Christian titanisms, and also all sweetness that pretends to let us taste heaven right now. From time to time there might appear an authentic and pious transparency in which all registers of earthly beauty are pulled out. Bach's Mass in B minor, Mozart's unfinished Great Mass, Rouault's Messian. In between, however, there is a wide range of exciting masterworks, which seem technically to achieve the transcendence from beauty to glory, while, and because of this, their power to enchant is a warning sign. It is hard to resist the Last Supper, the Crucifixion, the Moses of Tintoretto, to cite only one of many examples. Just as we cannot deny that one of Shakespeare's masterpieces, Measure for Measure, has some Christian components. The sermon of spirits is not only necessary for viewing art, but objectively for the artwork itself. This demands both aesthetic and religious training of the viewer. To disclose with a final example, The Crucifixion by Grunewald in Colmar. Here is highest skill, art is skill, in the service of deepest horror, which strangely enough makes, in contrast to many other horror-evoking depictions of the crucifixion, the humility of the painter evident. He disappears behind the unique masterwork of God. And this Christian virtue permits, through the ghastliness of the crucified, the seeming absence of all beauty, the breakthrough of the flaming mystery of the glory of love, fulget crucis mysterium. This is achieved rarely, but it can be done. Translated by Andre Emery.